0: This week on Grape Encounters Radio.
1: At the beginning of each year, it's our pleasure and privilege to look back upon the wineries and winemakers featured on Grape Encounters Radio in the prior year and select one that we believe has truly distinguished themselves by producing a broad range of consistently outstanding wines. This year's choice was easy. Not simply because the Cardella Winery in Mendota, California has literally earned a pot of gold medals but also because the place they call home is best known for modestly priced table wines produced in very high volume. Now, we have had the privilege of introducing the folks at Cardella to millions of listeners, and the Grape Encounters audience has been just as astounded by these wines as I am. Through innovations and unwavering commitment to being exceptional, the Cardella Winery lived up to the prediction I made a year ago. I said then that Cardella is destined to be one of America's great cult wineries. On today's show, you'll learn why.
2: Peel me a grape, crush me some ice, skin me a peach, save the fuzz for my pillow.
1: And we are here at the Cardella Winery and I think I'm drinking a glass of Sangiovese with Nathan Cardella, Rod his dad and uh, Suzanne Palazzo. All Italian names, right? Very much yes. Italian. So anyway, I am so excited to be here and to tell you our decision to make Cardella Winery our choice for Winery of the Year 2016. There's a lot of reasons why we made this decision. I'm going to get into a number of them, but There's a lot that's been happening since we made this decision. I'm going to start with Suzanne. Give me an update in just the last year of the awards that you guys have received here at Cardella.
2: Oh, my goodness. We have received many awards in a lot of different competitions. The San Joaquin Valley wine competition. We won four gold medals and the California State Competition in Sacramento.
1: Which is a very tough competition.
2: Very tough. Many entries, thousands of different wines. And we did awesome. We actually had two double golds that also won best of class and best of region. So stop
1: for a second and explain double gold for a second so people understand that because it's something very special.
2: It's very special and it's very difficult. And it has to be a unanimous decision among a certain amount of judges. So they all voted gold and then they go back and they decide, well, we've all decided these are all regular golds. Goals, so let's make this a double gold, because it was a unanimous decision among all judges. Yeah, and
1: I've sat on a lot of judging panels, judged a lot of wine. For everybody to agree on a gold medal is something very special. Let me go to you, Rod, because you're the boss. The money man. You're the money man. You financed this thing. Did you ever imagine, Rod, when you decided to go forward, and I guess on Nathan's recommendation, that your wines would get this much acclaim? Because, I mean, this is really hard to do under the best of circumstances, but you're in the San Joaquin Valley which is probably one of the most fertile, wonderful growing regions on planet Earth, but also not as well known for fine wine, better known for the class of wines that most Americans drink. And and that's not true across the board because there are people making some great wine in this region. But to compete against the best of the best and rake in these gold medals, did you think that would be possible? I thought we could do well.
0: We're doing better than I thought, but I have to give credit to Nathan, the winemaker. I have to give some credit, I guess, to Fresno State. Fresno State because? They taught him the technology and how to do it. So we're doing better than I ever dreamed possible.
1: Nathan, I'm going to look to you now. You guys have won piles of gold medals in the past few years. And I mean, you're winning the golds. You're not walking away with a bunch of bronzes. You're getting top honors. Did you expect that?
3: You know, no, I didn't expect it, but I'm not terribly surprised because I feel like whenever you do anything and give it your all and give it 100% and don't give up, you know, anything's achievable. I can honestly say over the last 13 years that the amount of work that we've all put into these wines is is reflected in the gold medals and what we're doing in the vineyard and how we're processing the wine. But no, 13 years ago, I couldn't have pictured where we're at today. Just to put this in perspective,
1: there are wineries – that will go years without winning a gold medal, if at all. It's not unusual to get one or two or three gold medals in a year, but given how small your winery is and how many medals you've won, you are really uh, in a class by yourself. But one of the reasons why I decided, and this was an easy decision, that Cardella should be our winery of the year is that the consistency of the quality of the products that you make is like nothing I've ever seen before and it's reflected in the metals we're talking about metals that are spread across several
3: varietals and to that end actually you know we just got the results back on the San Francisco Chronicle wine competition
1: which is one of the top wine competitions
3: the in the country for sure uh, yeah, absolutely and uh, we had four wines and took home four different gold medals. That's unthinkable.
1: And, you know, you'll remember that it was probably less than a year ago. I came here and I said at that time, remember, I said, Cardella Winery is going to become one of the great cult wineries in the nation. And since saying that, you have won buckets of medals to prove just how good these wines are. In terms of sales, have you seen increases commiserate with the amount of awards that you're winning?
2: Absolutely. And it's getting very exciting going out and visiting with people and getting this reaction with all of our gold medal winners. And we are truly excited about all of it.
1: Wow. So cool. In a minute, we're going to jump into what separates the wines of Cardella from other wines in this region, because You're doing some things here that are different. But I want to just sort of finish up with the medals for a second. Do you find that people discover the wines because they're out looking at who's winning medals where? Or is it that when people discover that you have these medals, that their curiosity is piqued?
2: It's a combination, an absolute combination. They hear about our gold medals. And when we do pourings after the competition... They want to come around and taste the medal winners.
1: That's, that's what they want. And it's really funny because they don't want so much the silver
3: medal or the bronze medals, which is, you know, it's great to get a silver and a bronze, but everybody wants the gold. You know, not to get too off track, but one of the most gratifying things for us is is winning these competitions, you know, winning gold medals and even best of class in, in certain instances, and knowing that we're going up against the coastal regions and, and these other well-known regions because these judges, they know what they're doing. And so when they are rating our wines superior to these other ones, that's telling us we're we're doing it right.
1: Well, that's the exciting thing about, uh, you know, what we're talking about here is the region that we're in right now, where I'm sitting right now, while it is one of the most productive regions in the world when it comes to growing the things that we eat and drink, where wine is concerned, it is centered more on volume. So when you're trying to compete with the really, really ultra-fine brands, that are coming from places like Napa and Sonoma and Paso Robles. It's a completely different ball game, right, Rod? How much do you get, Rod, a chance to compare your wines with other wines that are out there? That's a
0: loaded question.
1: Are you just so prejudiced now about your own wines that you don't drink anything else?
0: When I look at the price, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm
0: not going to get into drinking a $100 bottle of wine. I want to drink something that's more or less economical. And is good.
1: What if your wine got to the point where the market drove the price of your wine up to the hundred dollar range? And I'm not saying that you jack up the price. I'm saying that the wine becomes so scarce because of demand. Would you be okay with that?
0: I don't really want to go there.
1: You don't want to go there.
0: No, because you, mean, I, you
1: don't want to be. You don't want to be selling hundred dollar wine.
0: No, I, I'd like to keep the price of our wine more or less where it's at, or a little bit higher. But to get up to the hundred dollar. I'm not trying to impress people. What we're trying to do is give people a good wine.
1: Would it be satisfying to you to see your neighbors out here focusing more on lower production, more boutique-style wines and picking up some of the techniques that you use? I mean, that's one thing that's very interesting in the wine business, is it not, that people share ideas?
0: Well, there's two levels. There's Nathan's level, making the wine, and there's my level, which I'm growing for other wineries on a commercial basis. So kind of what I do is a little different because I've got to look at the bottom line. I've got to grow the most product at the cheapest price that I can versus what Nathan is doing is trying to make the best wine that he can.
1: We can do both. This is a very, very interesting subject. It's not often that we get to talk to somebody of your stature, somebody who is growing a lot of grapes for very well-known companies. Let's put it in perspective. You tell me what you're working with, and then, Nathan, you tell me what you're working with, okay? I'm working
0: with approximately 800 acres.
1: 800 acres. Wow. And then who are some of the companies that are buying those grapes?
0: We're growing exclusively for Gallo.
1: Okay, exclusively for Gallo. And, Nathan, let's compare operations for a second now. So you're growing on how many acres?
3: Uh, I'm controlling about 10. 10 acres?
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So dad doesn't feel sorry for you when you come in after a long day.
3: He should. There's just as much work that goes into that 10 acres as the 800 acres.
1: Really? Would you agree with that, Rod? No, no. Ah, Oh, yeah. You just got slapped down,
3: sonny. That's that's all right. When, When he sees the labor invoices, maybe he might agree this year. We're doing a lot of new stuff. So. All right. Hold that thought. We're
1: talking to Nathan and Rod Cardella. We are talking to Suzanne Palazzo. We are at the Cardella Winery. It is the Grape Encounters Winery of the Year for 2016 for lots and lots and lots of reasons. We're going to get into a number of those reasons when we return with Grape Encounters Radio.
0: certain wines, he's syrupy, sweet, and has long legs. Here's David Wilson.
3: To harvest forever,
1: our dreams of the San Joaquin. We're back with Grape Encounters Radio, and we are sitting in the middle of the vineyard at the Cardella Winery. You've heard me talk about them on Grape Encounters. And yes, they are now an advertiser, a sponsor of Grape Encounters. That was really not my doing. They actually came to me and asked about it, and I was happy to oblige. I do not attach my name to too many products. I'm really super selective. But in terms of wineries that offer consistently paramount quality across the board with their wines. I don't know of another winery that I could put in the class of Cardella. What makes it especially exciting is the fact that they're in the San Joaquin Valley, which is a tremendous growing region, but there are just a sprinkling of boutique wineries in the area compared to other places like Napa and Sonoma and Paso Robles and, oh gosh, you know, well-known growing regions in America. This region is known for, when it comes to grapes volume, more than any anything. And then Nathan, you have worked very hard to figure out how to bring that volume down and get the grapes to give more
3: concentrated quality.
1: Talk about that because you are doing some things here that are, I think, considered by many people to be cutting edge.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, really a lot of what we have here naturally is the ability to grow for higher yields. And, you know, a lot of wine growing regions see that as a disadvantage. They want the grapes to naturally be stressed. The way I approach it is, you know, our grapes aren't naturally They're naturally very, very, very happy here, which means they're going to produce a lot of fruit. So that gives me the ability to induce my own types of stress and and, and really limit the plant. So that's on why my you own. have
1: a writing crop that you take out there into the vineyard. That's right. Whack the grapes and if they need it, yeah, and, and Talk ugly to them.
3: Well, and so my version of talking ugly to them is not irrigating them. You know, yeah. um, You know, my my way of talking ugly to them is ripping off all their leaves early in the year so that they're getting a lot of sunlight so that in July and August they can handle the hundred degree days we, you know, we'll get to 100 degrees here from time to time. Um, So it's... it's I like the
1: way you say from time to time. It seems like during the entire summer, it's
3: 140 degrees It is from time to time, though that's from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, really having the grapes be so happy here allows me to start from a standpoint of if I do nothing, I'm going to get huge yields. It's up to me to do everything I can so that the vine is just on the brink of being happy, but really pretty sad so that it produces fruit with more concentrated Uh, flavors. Okay,
1: so we've got people that are listening right now at home and, you know, right next to them is their pet grape leaf ivy in the house and they do everything in their power to make that plant happy and they talk to it and they sing to it and all of these things it seems counterintuitive to say grapes prefer to be stressed explain that explain what it is about stress that makes for such delicious juice
3: yeah so there's really when you're talking about grapes there's two things that are happening within the grape chemically you've got the development of sugar and you've got the development of phenolics which is basically your color and, and a lot of your flavor's tannins. And when a grapevine is stressed, the sugar develops a lot slower. Um, And so the sugar and the phenolics really develop along the same curve. If your sugar develops too fast, once you reach a certain point, let's call it, let's say 24 bricks, uh, your phenolics will stop maturing, which means your color won't be as intense, your tannins won't be as ripe, and your flavors won't be as full. So the natural stress by slowing down the sugar accumulation in the vineyard allows the phenolics to ripen along the same curve. And that's really what we're trying to do. So you also, want your grapes? Do you not to ripen later in the season? You want to slow
1: the whole you process want, you down. Want a, yeah, you want a longer
3: a-, a-, a longer growing season, and then concurrent with that, you want small fruit, so you have more concentrated flavors, uh, which is why you know irrigation is such an important factor. If you irrigate a lot, you're going to have a much larger berry, and really the volume of that berry is being made up with basically water. I mean, a grape is already 80 uh, percent water or 75 percent water for the most part. You, you really don't want too much uh, volume, mass wise, in the grape. You want small clusters and small berries, and that. Would you have a higher ratio of juice to skin so how does that feel to you Rod because you you
1: on one hand are trying to get as much yield as you can out of your vineyards and your son is trying to slow everything down does that in any way give you the creepy crawlies
3: that's above my pay grade well I, I don't grow grapes you, like he you, does you, you need to watch him check out the vineyards after we've dropped a bunch of fruit on the ground and, and then oh you'll see nuts. no
1: yeah and when we say drop fruit on the ground you're talking about literally uh, uh,
3: cluster thinning yeah, yeah so, just, so
1: just clipping it and letting it fault. That's right. Does that get used for anything by the way?
3: No, I mean I've had some ideas of what we could use it for. I think maybe you could take the grapes to the winery and press it and harvest the natural acid out of it and use it maybe for blending or something. But really when you're doing that, your your mind isn't on wine production. Your wine is on grape production at that time so you don't really do much with it. It's got to make your skin crawl just a little it's bit. Tough. No, yeah, It's, it's really a, tough. Emotionally, be- yeah. Because you, you will literally see a blanket of green grape clusters you know, that stretch a quarter mile down our row on both sides of the vine and that really represents the vineyard being at 12 tons going down to six tons. Do you
1: ever ask yourself, gosh, am I doing the right thing here? Maybe am I overdoing it? Am I not doing enough?
3: Yeah. Every, every single, single time?
1: time. Every, every, so every far, time. you So far, you've got it right, though. I think. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Susanna, you come from the farming industry as well, right? Oh, absolutely. World, yeah. I'm a
2: third-generation farmer.
1: All right. So tell me your background, and how long have you been involved in agriculture in one form or another?
2: I've been involved in agriculture through family out here in California for 30 years. Okay. But I'm originally from the Midwest.
1: Okay, so tell me this. You're here in the San Joaquin Valley. You obviously are very savvy when it comes to wine. But when I met you, I met you at an event in a prime wine region. Uh, how How much resistance or pushback do you get when you're pouring your wines for somebody who may have some sort of prejudice against areas that are not, you know, known as the big, great wine growing areas.
2: Oh, absolutely. A lot of pushback, especially when you're pouring at a big event and you're using banners and very proud of them that say San Joaquin Valley. You are talking to people about how wonderful your wine is and people come up and say, oh, San Joaquin Valley. And I get right out there and I pull people in because I'm a little bit of an outgoing.
1: Let's just say that when I first met you, you were ripping my arm out of its socket, intent on having me try these wines. And frankly, we wouldn't be sitting here today had you not done that. So you get aversion from people, but then they try the wine and then what?
2: And they love it. They fall in love with it. Where can I purchase this wine? And it's off to the races from there. And it gets very exciting. And I don't let them walk away without tasting everything that we have at our table, whether they're resisting or not. I, I love to use the term, trust me, you will fall in love with this.
1: It's the little winery that could. It's the Cardella winery. In Mendota, California. And if you look at the label, you're likely to go, oh, Mendoza. Yeah, Mendoza makes some good wines. It's not Mendoza, Argentina. It's Mendota, California. And it is one of the most interesting success stories I have ever come across in the wine business. We have named Cardella the Grape Encounters Winery of the Year for 2016 for lots of reasons. You know, one of the reasons is just the unique techniques that they use to be able to create amazing wines in an area known for something different, bulk wines, which is what most of us are drinking. But the sheer volume of awards that are coming to this winery in blind tastings by the best judges in the toughest competitions, medal after medal after medal. And we're talking about the golds, consistently the golds. It's
2: mostly golds. And (sighs) now we are going with double golds and best of class, best of region. We are just going. It makes you so excited and happy. It truly does. Well, listen, we're going to come back
1: in just a second. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about why Cardella deserves to be called the hottest cult winery today in the country, at least that I'm familiar with. And we'll get into that next. I'm with Ron and Nathan Cardella, Suzanne Palazzo. We're at the Cardella winery and uh, drinking a Sangiovese right now, loving life. And we'll return with more grape encounters from Mendota, California, right after this.
0: He's setting down the wine glass and picking up the microphone. Here's your Grape Encounter's host, David Wilson.
2: Down in the boom
1: I don't think there's anything that I migrate toward more than what I would call cult wineries. Now, cult may sound like a negative word to you, but to me, the cult winery is the small boutique winery. They come up with their own techniques. They don't worry about what everybody else does. It's all about making the finest wines they possibly can. They're not concerned about doing this in mass quantities. It just needs to be really great. Cardella Winery, to me, is the ultimate expression of what we're talking about here the best of boutique because they make several wines but not very much of any of them and all of those wines are for the most part raking in the gold medals and it's just an astounding feat when you think about it especially when you consider the fact that the wines the grapes are grown and the wines are made in a place that is known more for big than for small and yet the emphasis is on small i'm just curious nathan we here with uh, Nathan Cardella, Rod Cardella's dad, who manages 800 acres of grapes that are grown exclusively for Gallo, and Suzanne Palazzo, who's been responsible for making sure that the Cardella wines are getting into the competitions where they're just dominating their classes. Nathan, you got out of school with your degrees in winemaking. Why did you not go someplace else? Why did you stay here? You wanted to make fine wine, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you stuck around. Were you convinced? at that point in time, fresh out of school, that you would be able to compete at that level?
3: No. But, you know, how often do you have an opportunity to get behind the wheel and control your own destiny? And, so you're talking uh, about
1: driving a tractor?
3: Well, yeah. Same analogy, right? Yeah, but, you know, you have an opportunity to do it your way where going somewhere else, you're going to be doing it someone else's way. And ultimately, the goal was to prove to people we can make fine wines in the San Joaquin Valley. And, you know, that's kind of what they taught us at Fresno State, is that you can make fine wines from any region. You just need to have the right grape varieties. You need farm them correctly and you need to make the wine. Aim,
1: aim into that. Rod, tell me the conversation. Tell me about the conversation between you and Nathan when you finally made the decision to...
0: You want me to tell you about all uh, the number of gallons that he dumped on the road because it didn't turn out the way he wanted it? Well, yes. I want to hear that. I, then I was very, I don't very know. About, I
1: don't know about this story.
0: Okay. Go ahead. Well, there was a couple times when I'd see the road wet. I uh, read and I'd ask him, "What? why is it red? Well, I had to dump a thousand or two thousand gallons of this because no! it, it didn't taste right and i go do you realize what that cost so anyway we've so paid you our guys dues. had
3: some scuffles then oh well, yeah he, he doesn't understand what it takes to you know in this, in this valley, what it actually takes to, to make the wine. And it's, to his defense, I mean, you drive by the vineyard, you see six tons of fruit sitting on the ground, and then six months later, you see wine in the road because it, it just didn't turn out. I'm, look,
1: um, I'm looking out, and this area is really huge. It seems, Nathan, you might have picked a better place to dump
3: it. I thought it looked kind of cool to have purple roads, to dump Oh, to I see. Okay. You. you know, and to my defense, that was year one. Uh, year one, we had a problem right out of Fresno State. Uh, you know, came out here, and I kind of just missed the ball and the last thing I wanted to do was put wine you know, in a bottle with our label on it and damage our brand before we even have even had a chance. So you made
1: the decision to dump it. Have there been other dumpings since? No,
3: that was it. it was that two, was the only two, dumping. In 2004, it was, a, it was a Syrah, yeah. Syrah. You know, they say, case okay, Syrah, Syrah, right? Well, and, and you know what? The mistake that I, I made, I didn't make that mistake again because it wasn't easy for me either. You, know, you put a lot of time and effort into the wine regardless if it turns out good or bad. Did you know you were going to be in trouble? Well, I, I tried not to say anything. Just, okay,
1: yeah. But you're right. Yeah, I guess I picked the wrong road. Road, you picked so. the wrong road. Okay. First of all, what did you do
3: that was wrong, and how did you correct it? I took my eye off the prize. I got complacent, and you know, after fermentation, I, I just you know, it's really a lack of knowledge on on how to proceed properly from fermentation throughout the aging process, and and really just you know, when you when you don't fully understand things, you tend to do nothing, and that those are that's the wrong thing to do. There's always something that that needs to be done with the wine, whether it's checking the chemistry on it, or, or topping barrels, or racking the wine when you sense there's a problem, and those were all things that I didn't fully understand. Uh, my book smarts was was great coming out of Fresno State. I didn't necessarily have all the street smarts that I needed to to not make mistakes. You really
1: had to have some epiphanies, I think, in
3: order to move forward. Yeah, I think early on I came to a realization that, you know, what makes a great wine a great wine? Well, to me, what makes a great wine uh, is the way that it looks in the glass, the way that it smells, and the way that it tastes. Uh, it needs to be pretty to look at, first and foremost. Uh, aromas need to be intense, and they need to be not one-dimensional dimensional, they need to be complex, and of course the flavor needs to be balanced and have a nice finish. Uh, And really what that taught me was to focus on how do I get complexity with the aromas and the flavors and put my focus there on how can I produce wine from this particular vineyard in such a way that it is full of complexity and and full of just interesting flavors and aromas that uh, you you wouldn't normally get if you just process the wine normally.
1: We're uh, talking right now to Nathan Cardella, Cardella Winery in Mendota, California, raking in literally Gold medals and best of class awards, uh, double gold medals. It's an achievement that actually most wineries will never enjoy. It's just an amazing feat, especially for a winery that hasn't, by most standards, has not been around all that long. You, are there people now coming to you, Nathan, and asking you what's the secret? Yes,
3: yes. I try to monetize on that a little bit, Uh, but no. You you know, we've got neighbors out here, and you kind of touched on it earlier that you know have have seen what we're doing. And, you know, maybe they have nephews or sons that have gone through the enology program at Fresno State, and they potentially want to get a small operation going on on their property. So I'll definitely help them out and teach them what I know. I mean, at the end of the day, though, it's your dedication to it. I can tell you what to do every step along the way, but it's how you react to the wine as it's being processed that that really uh, makes the difference. Do not
1: take your eye off the prize. Don't take your eye off the ball. Let me jump over to Suzanne for a second. You are responsible for selling it. And one of the things that I think is interesting, about your wines is that you're making a lot of varietals that aren't necessarily on everybody's top five list. Not that they're not good varietals, they're just not as familiar to people. Let's say Barbera, as an example, don't see a lot of Barbera out there. Sangiovese, we see a little bit more of that. Ruby Cabernet, most people have never even heard of it. So is that an advantage or a disadvantage?
2: I don't consider any of it a disadvantage. If they Aren't familiar with it. It is my job to educate them on it. But I use a lot of personal stories, a lot of personal pairings. I use the fact that we are so warm out here and we grow varietals that love the heat. I talk about Nathan, and and I I know Rod laughs at me when I say this, but I like to tell people that Nathan is an artist. He really is, and he's he's very talented as a winemaker. Uh, well, so, heck, he is an artist. He painted a whole road. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did. He yeah. did. But that was the 2004 Syrah. And I have to add to that, our 2012 Syrah that we have not released yet just won a double gold with wow, that, the San Francisco Chronicle. That, that is
1: su- such an accomplishment. Let me uh, bump over to Rod for a second. The idea of varietal correctness. I, I just want to ask this question because one of the things that happens at competitions a lot of times is that a wine at first will be very exciting to the judge's But then all of a sudden they realize that, you know, maybe it's not, as they call it, varietally correct. You know, it's a Sangiovese, let's say, but it doesn't have all of the characteristics of Sangiovese the way they know it. But the wine's delicious all the same. To you, which is more important, that the wine be delicious or that the wine be varietally correct, or does it have to be both? My way of thinking, if
0: it's delicious, that is worth 100 points. That's right.
1: a, That's 100 points? Yes, the rest on, of on, it. On a 100-point scale, right? Yes. And, and Nathan, your thoughts on this?
3: To me, there's only two or three varieties that need to be varietally correct, and then after that, and those those happen to be the ones that I can pick out blind every time. So um, we're talking Cabernet. Uh, Zinfandel and, and Pinot Pinot Noir. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, not really, because really you're talking about terroir, so you know, my Sangiovese grown here should taste different than a Sangiovese that's coming from Italy. We've got different soils and climates.
1: That's the funny thing is, I really haven't got to this part of it. As a lot of people know, my wife and I operate a wine bar that we built for listeners of this show, the Grape Encounters Emporium. And our whole purpose in life is for you to be able to come and visit with us and let us pour you things that we think are absolutely delicious. If we get too hung up on varietal correctness, wouldn't you think, Nathan, that every single Cabernet would taste exactly the same and what would be the point of having 50,000 people making cabernet it would be too much the same to me the only thing that really does matter is do you love it and the varietal correctness is important only to the extent that if somebody's a cabernet drinker and i pour them a cabernet that the things that they love about cabernet they're going to taste in this wine
3: yeah if i does I got, that make sense absolutely if i order a cabernet's cuz i want a bold wine that's got some you know dark fruit and structure and backbone and uh, you know if i get poured Cabernet that's real light and extremely tutti-frutti, I'm probably not going to be happy because that's not what I wanted. Um, So yeah, aside from that though, yeah, varietal correctness to me, I'm with my dad. If the wine is good, uh, that's really the most important part there.
1: The Grape Encounters Winery of the Year for lots and lots of good reasons. I'm telling you, I can't think of any winery that puts out so little wine, and I don't mean that in a negative way. There are lots and lots and lots of boutique wineries that make the amount of wines that Cardella makes. But to make them with such incredible continuity and have them earn so many awards, it's just absolutely unbelievable that any winery could do that and then at the same time do it in an area that's you know not normally in these competitions to begin with. Strange but true. My favorite winery for so many reasons We'll be back with just a few more minutes to spend with Rod Nathan and Suzanne at the Cardella Winery in Mendota, California
2: Okay, so you're Brad Pitt. That don't impress me much.
0: From our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California, you are listening to America's number one wine radio show, Grape Encounters with David Wilson.
2: Don't impress
1: me much. I really think that it's fair to say that it takes a lot to impress me when it comes to wine. I drink a lot of wine from a lot of places around the globe. I get to taste the best of the best. I don't intentionally drink a lot of the really expensive wines because I want to drink wines that you can afford, that I can afford. So I really focus my attention on wines that are nicely priced, but incredibly well made. And one thing more than anything that's important to me from a winery is continuity. They've got to not just make one great wine, they've got to make a lot of great wines. That is why Cardella Winery is a huge standout. Everybody that tastes the wines from this winery fall in love with these wines. Now, am I pushing these wines on you? No, I'm telling you discover wineries that do consistently exceptional work. But the wines of Cardella, if you get a chance to try them, by all means, you not only want to try them, you want to take some home. But Nathan, the variety that you chose are you know kind of not the usual complement of varietals that we see from a winery a lot of Italian varietals in there and some unusual things like Ruby Cabernet, which is a varietal that I really love. I think that was a hybrid made at Davis, right? That's correct, yeah. Tell me how you came to choose the varietals that you're growing and why did you pick these? And do you think that these varietals are poised to be really super hot?
3: Yeah, that's a loaded question. And and I can't take all the credit for picking the varietals because a lot of it was what Gallo had wanted us to plant. There are varieties like Malbec, Petit Syrah, uh, Albarino uh, that we've planted on our own because I thought, they'd do really well here. But, you know, I think all of these wines... They're here because they do well in a warm climate. They hold on to their acid, they hold on to their color, they produce nice supple tannin. And I really do think there's a future with all these wines. In particular, Ruby Cabernet, I think it's a fantastic alternative to Cabernet Sauvignon at literally a quarter of the price with all the same, you know, flavors and aromas.
1: It's just an absolutely delicious grape, but wasn't it originally created because they could get higher volume and really the same kind of taste profile that you got from Cabernet
3: Sauvignon? That's right. So you know what what people don't understand is Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet.
1: I like to say that it was an illicit relationship between two cousins in the Bordeaux family that, that resulted in Cabernet Sauvignon.
3: That's right. And I and it wasn't, you know, done at a university or anything like that. But, you know, Ruby Cabernet is a hybrid of Cabernet Sauvignon and Carignan. And so it's the Carignan that gives it the ability to really tolerate our warm weather. But, you know, the reason why the University of Davis came up with this variety is because the larger wineries wanted a grape variety that they could blend into other Bordeaux varieties, such as Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon, to make them better. Bear in mind, too that
1: they could dump as much as 25% of those wines into a batch of Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot and still call that wine Merlot. That's correct. And this is not an unusual
3: thing to have happen. No, it's extremely common, and that's why it's here. That's why it, at one point, it was the number nine highest planted grape variety in the state of California. However, there were no wineries producing it as a varietal. And I've got to give my wife credit for us doing it here because you know she said, you go around telling everyone that if you farm the grapes for quality and produce the wine properly, you can have these fantastic wines but you're not doing anything with Ruby Cabernet. And here the big wineries are taking Ruby Cabernet that you're not growing for quality, and they're blending it into their wines to make quality better. Isn't that something? And this wine is really,
1: really exceptional. I mean, in fact, it is one of my absolute favorites of all
3: the wines that you create here. It's probably my favorite overall. And it is so because you can sense the Cabernet Franc in there. You can sense the Cabernet Sauvignon. It's all part of its DNA, and it's all part of its pedigree. And you know, when you analyze the wine, you can understand that those varieties are in there somewhere.
1: All right, I'm going to go around the table for a second. I, I just want each of you to tell me, and let's begin with Suzanne, your three favorite wines that are made here at Cardella and why, and why you think those wines deserve a lot more attention in the consumer market.
2: Well, I my favorite is also the Ruby Cabernet. Oh, is that right? Oh, I just absolutely love it, but I love big and bold. But I I'm also one of those people that I pair it with whatever we are having at home. So I love the Ruby Cabernet and I love it with big and bold meals, but I also love it with chocolate. It's divine with chocolate. You can sit down at a table and go from appetizer to main course to dessert with the same Ruby Cabernet and never get up from the table.
1: Wow, all purpose?
2: All purpose. Okay,
1: give me two more real quick. I
2: love the Sangiovese. It's a very drinkable wine. It's a wine that you can come home and and you can have two or three or four glasses of. And really, you can have it with a meal. I don't. I just drink it because I love it.
1: People are not drinking enough Sangiovese.
2: I agree. Sangiovese
1: is just such a a great varietal, you know, and we're seeing more and more of it being grown in California, I think. Is that correct? Yeah,
3: yeah, it's it's getting a lot of popularity.
1: Yeah, but one of the things that I think is interesting about your style of winemaking, and it's just an interesting discussion, all around that some of these varietals, like Sangiovese or Barbera, made in their native countries, are going to be, I think, a bit more bone dry and are not going to have that mouthfeel and fullness of fruit that you get from the way you make the wine. And I think that's much
3: more pleasing to the American palate, don't you think? Yeah. So I mean, Barbera and Sangiovese are, you know, they're old world varieties, and we're producing them here in a new world style, which is focusing more on fruit, more on volume, a little bit higher alcohols, and of course course you know what we're doing in in the winery is emphasizing that uh so yeah i I would agree with you a lot okay rod
1: favorite three sangiovese
3: barbera and sangiovese
1: sangiovese barbera and sangiovese now does that mean because i know you have a double barrel reserve sangiovese and then you have your regular sangiovese is that what you're saying or are you just saying that you love sangiovese so much that it gets two votes
0: the double barrel they don't let me drink they want to sell that i have some of
1: that if you'd like to buy some from me Uh, i'll look on your website
0: (laughs) all right yeah Okay, so San just that good. For me it is. I mean, I like Italian food. I'm an Italian cook and it seems to pair real well with
3: what I cook.
1: Okay, and Nathan
3: yeah, it's... They're your children. Ruby Cabernet, Sangiovese, Barbera. They all have their own purpose. Uh, but right now, I'm actually really digging our Petite Syrah, which which I'm I'm trying not to promote. I probably shouldn't say that because I'm trying to just drink the rest of what we have. We've got very little left. Oh, I left, see. But, uh, we, we've only got a third of an acre of it, and it made a fantastic see, wine. See,
1: Petit Syrah is, is... I encourage people to go out and try and buy more Petite Syrah. But warning... It's a big wine. It's a big wine, and you might be very disappointed if it hits you over head had like a sledgehammer, some people are able to make this varietal in a much lighter form that still maintains the character of this incredible grape, but it can be overpowering. Yours is not.
3: Yeah, it, it can be a beast. And I think one of the reasons why ours isn't is because of where our vineyards are and the way that the grapes mature. So I, I think naturally it's tamed a little bit. And then of course, there's things we're doing in the winery to tame it even further. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm on board with you there. They can be a little bit aggressive, but that's why I like ours so much right now because it. It's, it's something you can sit down and drink on its own as a, as a cocktail or have it with a meal, and it's great. Well, listen, guys, that's going to do it for today. I just wanted to let you know it's very humbling to be you know, named your your winery of the year. So thank you.
1: It is an honor that is absolutely, totally deserved. And I just thank you guys so much for doing such a great job. You are changing the wine world, and that's exciting. We will be back here next time. In the meantime, you know, check out the Cardella Wines. You can go to com, and you can purchase the wines there or come to the Grape Encounters Emporium in California if you're in the area. We will see you next week for another episode of Grape Encounters Radio.